Chapter 3 of An American Sickness begins with the pledge taken by medical professionals. Quote, I promise to deal with each patient as I would wish to be dealt with if I were in the patient's position, and I will set my fees commensurate with the services rendered. And here's another. I will take no part in any arrangement such as fee splitting or itinerant surgery, which induces referral or treatment for reasons other than the patient's best welfare. Some of you might be gasping or rolling your eyes at this point. Everyone who's had a medical issue has come face to face with fees not being commensurate with the services rendered. Rosenthal even points out that in the 60s and 70s, the pledge said that fees, quote, should be commensurate with the services rendered and the patient's ability to pay. Man, has that changed. And it brings up some other questions. And what about a physician or specialist's income? Rosenthal mentions the wealthy physician Hippocrates, who once said, No fee, not even a large one, is adequate for the physician, but it is with God Almighty that his remuneration rests. But he also clarified that doctors should navigate fees according to a patient's situation. It seems Hippocrates knew that physicians needed to make money, too. But where's the balance? The book provides some anecdotes where physicians and specialists can be overheard bemoaning the fact that they only make six figures, or that they don't make as much as some of their colleagues, even though they make significantly more than the average Joe. Perhaps this is because the physician believes their work to be more important than other forms, but that is highly debatable. Another suggestion is that the average $170,000 debt of a medical student is difficult to pay off, but that might be difficult to argue as well. Of course, RVUs, relative value units, didn't help. This was a sort of algorithm developed to put a price on the amount of time it took to learn and perform different procedures, amongst a few other things. This didn't always pan out nicely for physicians and specialists. Rosenthal shows us, for example, that it's easier to quantify how long it would take a radiologist to perform a procedure compared to a neurologist whose work is a bit more complicated to qualify. By and large, those in the medical field who engage in business endeavors tend to make more money. For starters, there's what Rosenthal calls the doctor-entrepreneur-owner. Essentially, doctors started their own style of outpatient businesses where patients can be treated outside of normal facilities. Physicians and specialists can change their own rates and don't have to work with insurance. The bills are a lot higher this way. You might exclaim, there should be some type of reins on these facilities. The book responds that regulators tried to make these businesses provide disclosures, and I'll quote here, but those disclosures typically came in a pile of other paperwork to sign in the minutes before heading into the procedure room when the patient had no option to leave. Another strategy is what is known as NPC, a no-patient contact specialist. 
Basically, all kinds of physicians might charge you for their work without you ever seeing them. These specialists can also charge higher rates for being considered out of your network. Watch out for these types of providers. We are given a chilling example of what can happen. After a husband and wife did research to ensure their baby delivery would be in-network, they found out that the pediatricians charged them $10,000 as an out-of-network provider. This was outside of what insurance would cover. But how could they know who was in their network or not? We'd assume that every person in the hospital worked for that hospital, but no. It turns out that private businesses are created outside of hospitals, and then these businesses sell their services to the hospitals. These businesses can be anywhere in the United States. Lastly, a third strategy used by specialists tags along with what was previously mentioned. If specialists could essentially employ and disperse themselves at a hospital of their choosing, and if they could dodge insurance and charge their own rates, does this mean they also don't have to abide by normal hospital rules? Rosenthal shares a story that hits close to home for her. Her daughter once had a seizure, which led to an ER visit and a brain scan. They discovered she had a tumor. Rosenthal was advised to go forward with immediate surgery, but thankfully she was a medical doctor herself, so she made some calls. Soon she realized that, quote, neurosurgery to remove a tumor is never an emergency. They signed a waiver that said they were leaving against medical advice and had the benign tumor removed two weeks later by an in-network surgeon on staff at the hospital. But this is pitted against another story of a woman whose daughter was facing the same situation and was urged to have immediate surgery on her tumor. The mother agreed and the surgeon who, quote, had no particular expertise in brain tumors, poked around without successfully removing the tumor. The bill was $97,000 because, as it turns out, the on-call surgeon was out of network who just happened to have a nice deal at that hospital. next podcast, we will pick up where we left off and give a few more examples of these different money-making strategies. What we do hope is that you have grown in awareness of how even you can be more financially prepared and wise if you ever need to go to the hospital. No one has to be a victim of fear and urgent procedures just to be charged an outrageous bill when it's all said and done. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast to access all of our episodes, and please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it.